All right, good morning, everybody. This morning, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 22, that's where we'll be this morning. Proverbs 22. I didn't even look at the slides. Is there anything coming up that we need? Okay, good. We'll catch up next week then. We do have communion today, though, so we'll get right at the text. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. We pray that you'd show us the things you'd have for us. This is a book of wisdom from you, God, from a man, but from your Holy Spirit, and help us to take it to heart. Pray to help us to learn everything you want us to learn, and we pray that it would be seasoned with grace, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of these things are a little hard this morning. I have only four verses that I'm going to stick out or take, you know, some time on. We're only going to go through verse 16 this morning. So 1 through 16 is our, so if you think by 15, we're not further enough along to actually, one verse away and then we'll, we'll end on time. Remember Solomon is also the son of David. So a lot of the things that Solomon writes, because he became the wisest man that ever lived, because he asked for that from God, he learned a lot from, and and we all do, things his dad did that dad didn't do very well, maybe. David was not a very good disciplinarian, if you know the story. Absalom's a prime example of that. David had a hard time. He was very guilt-ridden about that. Um, in the sense that I don't think I have the authority to speak into my kids' lives anymore because of the mistakes I've made in the past. And Solomon was aware of that. And so when we see Solomon spending so much time focusing on how to train up your kids, it's because maybe he saw some lack on David's part with what he did with his kids. He wasn't a very good disciplinarian. So um, that helps us understand why he says what he says and why he's so adamant about it, okay? It doesn't mean that if you're a bad disciplinarian as a, as, a, as a father, that your child won't turn out okay. That's our hope, is that Christ, by God's grace and mercy, makes up the difference in our you know, parental lack. You know. um, that's our hope. Because nobody does it perfectly, obviously. And, uh, so, but Solomon is proactive about this. He says, I'm not going to let this go unsaid, at least, you know. I'm not going to let it go undocumented that I shared this with you. So that's why he writes these, and they're for us. Verse 1, a good name is to be chosen rather than, rich, rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. As we go through this, you'll see that it doesn't have to be and or, but if you had to choose or if you're going to be left with one thing, the only thing that lasts is going to be the good name um, and, the, and, the, and the great favor from the Lord. That's what you want, okay? It doesn't mean you can't have both. It just means make sure you have those other things set up. Solomon did. Um, when God gave him that option, what do you want me to give you? Ask. He asked for wisdom. And because he asked for wisdom, the other things followed. So we have that example in Solomon that both can cohabitate. It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. So um, we see that. But... The good name and the favor does produce the other things. And he isn't necessarily talking about monetary or physical riches. It can, but he's also talking about there is something about when we read the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, all that matters, all that we take with us when we go to heaven, 
is love, joy, patience, kindness. That's the riches he's speaking of, the fruit of the Spirit. Um, It doesn't matter how much physical riches you have if you have a life of misery or a life of sorrow or regret or whatever it may be. You want to have the other, you know, the peace that surpasses understanding. And so a good name um, is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. Verse 2, the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. Um, Solomon will discover that or, or share that at, in Ecclesiastes. That's our next book after the Proverbs. Uh, Solomon writes that as well. He writes three books, uh, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and then, of course, Ecclesiastes, which we're going to hit next time we get there, about six months, I think, or not, you know, four months, five months. It's going to be a while. Um, but the rich and the poor have this in common. In other words, you're equal. You're the same, you know. Um, the, the, Lazarus and the rich man is a great example of that. I think it's Luke 16 is where that, that story or that narrative is discussed. One's rich and one's, you know, one's poor, but both end up dead. Both end up one place or another without. And so the riches, you know, the, the wealth, that's for now. The poverty, that also is just for now. It's not forever. Um, and so he's just making a point. Don't forget that, son, when you become king or if you become king. But no matter who's standing in front of you, it's the quality of the person. It's who they are. It's their character. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter whether they're rich or the poor. And it goes both ways for the rich and the poor because he's writing to his son. He isn't like teaching rich people how to be nice to poor people or poor people how to not be and believe it or not, there is such a thing as snobby, poor, you know. Oh, I'm more poor than you. I, Midwest is famous for that. We are. We're famous for snobby, poor, you know. Oh, that's a nice car. Oh, you should have seen the deal I got on it. I mean, four of the wheels were missing and 12 of the, you know, whatevers. Oh, well, God, I don't know why you bought it. Well, it's a great, you know, we have to drop, no matter how great the thing is, we make sure it's, oh, it's nothing. It's nothing, you know, it's nothing. that's not the issue. Um, Poor people should not have a prejudice towards rich people. All rich people are the same. They're all selfish. All all their money needs to be taken away and given to us. (laughs) That's suspicious, a little Uh, self-serving. Neither should the rich be snobby about the poor. You know, why don't they do this or why don't they do that and better stay away? That, that division, that economic division isn't supposed to be there. And that's what he's trying to teach his son. You don't, you don't, need, to, uh, um, you don't need to divide people up into those categories. God made them all. And that's important. The poor person needs to understand that God loves the rich person as much as he loves you. He doesn't love you more because you're poor. And likewise, the rich person needs to understand that God loves the poor just as much as he loves the rich. You haven't just received favor. You know, it isn't that you've lived your life correctly and that's why you have all this money. The rain falls in the just and the unjust alike. You can't give that credit. You know, you, there are benefits to living a life for the Lord, for sure. There are blessings attached to that, but it's not always the case. It's the character. It's the character that matters. So, verse 3, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Um, 
not much to share here. I mean, obviously, if you see something, you know, it's important to have um, situational awareness, we would call it, foresight. You know, this feels funny. Something's not right here. I don't know what it is, but we need to get going, you know. He isn't talking about being cowardly, but there's evil. Let's just get out of here. I don't know what they're going to do about it. That's not, more like a volcano is going to go off. And it's like, we should get in the boat and find another island kind of thing is the idea. And the foolish sit there and say, well, I, won't, I don't think it's, you know, <laughs> well, you know, hope you have some fire insurance is the idea. So you foresee evil and you hide yourself. You protect yourself from evil that can be protected from. Okay. Of course, the primary example of that is Jesus Christ. There isn't a thing I can do to avoid hell I, I, or fight it. I can't fight going to hell. I do need to protect myself from it. I do need to hide myself in Christ from that. So there's a, a great example of that. It's, you're prudent. I see evil. I'm going to hide myself. Simple, foolish people, eh, it'll be fine. I'm sure it's going to be okay. You know, well, Me and God have an understanding. When I die, we'll have a talk. Mm, you're not going <laughs> to. Um, Bible tells us so. So um, protect yourself. Now, verse 4. This is a verse I wanted to spend some time on. We're going to be here a while. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Humility is how we should see ourselves. It's a correct version, a correct vision of ourselves. Humility. We need to look at ourselves with that and understand who we are. The fear of the Lord is the correct vision of God. That's the difference. And those two things in your life and in my life produce riches, honor, and life in our lives. It just does. So um, what I notice about humility and humiliation, and there's not much difference between the two, but I don't want to focus on that. Um, we're afraid of it. We're afraid of, hum- of humility. Um, the world teaches us that humility is weakness and that humility is to be taken advantage of or humility is to be a doormat. And it, and it's, it scared us enough that we don't want it. We protect ourselves by um, uh, advertising ourselves or promoting ourselves to those around us. Um, and if we do dabble in humility publicly, we make sure that it looks so humble that it elevates us, you know. True humiliation um, is, is, a th- is a work of the Spirit in someone's life. It really is. True humiliation, not piety, not false piety, but true humiliation is a work of the Spirit. Um, it was an interesting week for me. It's going to take me a while to unpack it. It had nothing to do with my dad's illness. It had everything to do with the impact he made on, I'd say, roughly 36 to 40 people while he was there, you know. Um, things to watch and um, just watched him do what he's done his whole life. But he's been at home alone for years and years and years and years and years and years and years, you know. And so then to be thrust into a hospital where you have constant flow of new people and watch him make that connection with people. And I don't mean a connection like, you know, like we know each other's names, but like a bonded to each person that came into the room um, to the point where other chairs were brought into the room so that the charge nurse or whatever nurse was having a bad day would come into his room, sit and be refreshed with just love, joy, funniness, easygoing, 
you know, um, one of the nurses went upstairs to get her friend to come downstairs to come meet this guy, you know, while she was on duty, you know. So I watched that all take place. Um, he's just, he's a, he's a great man. And I watched that greatness for a week sitting there in the couch, you know, in the room, didn't say a word. No ministry for me to do. Just watched all these people flow in and flow out. And him be smart-alecky and funny and, and everybody just... And the one that hit me, and here's... It kind of goes along with this proverb. I'm trying not to make it about my dad. Um, was Josiah, the cleaning boy. Probably on the spectrum, you know. Um, found a job a little bit different. Quiet, no eye contact, you know the type. Um, and day by day, just <laughs> made this connection with this kid. The kid was different after a week of this. Absolutely different. Waved at my dad when he'd go by the room, you know. And then go on with his lack of eye contact with everybody else and go by the room again, even though it wasn't on his route, you know, kind of thing. And then would come in and He's already cleaned, you know. You need anything else, Mr. Dirks? You know, kind of thing. Um, what my dad appreciates and what I saw him was notice the humility. And the humility was beautiful. And my dad knew how to let that be where it is, and it was fine. And made that connection with this kid, you know, beautiful relationship with this kid who doesn't talk, almost nonverbal, um, but was verbal by the end of the week, you know, with him anyway. Anyway, that humility was a beautiful thing. And that can't come, that true humility, it wasn't false. It was the kid knew who he was. He knew his awkwardness. He knew his uh, spectrum. He knew he wasn't the same and all that. And so there was this humility that was just, and I saw that. And my dad did too. So the, the point of this is the kid wasn't afraid of it. And I watched my dad minister, not minister, not like we do, um, just bond with this kid because he had a proper view of, of himself. And it, it makes us, and this is the point, um, it makes us approachable. With, our, with spirit-led humility, we're approachable, we're easy to hear from, you know, what we have to say can be received. It's so important. And um, that humility that the Spirit gives us is um, not only a proper view, but makes us, um, well, a, a powerful force, for lack of a better word, in this world for Christ. It just does. Here's the verse. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 5, because Paul was humble. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. Now, I'm making a move here, making a switch to us as believers. Um, the humility we have in the Holy Spirit is about ourselves the boasting we have about the change that's taken place in our lives is about Jesus. 
I will never apologize for boasting in my new life and the new person that I am. I will give all the credit to Jesus, but I'm not going to diminish it at all. I think Moses is our best example of that. Moses knew who he was. I, I don't, I'm old. I'm 80 years old. I, I'm slow of speech. Um, I don't want to go. Oh, fine. Aaron's coming with me. The whole, the whole story, you know it. But when challenged by his sister, and when challenged by his brother, and when challenged by Korah, he didn't shy away from it in the sense that, look, I may be humble, and I know that about myself. I know who I am, but I will not shirk my responsibilities and the calling that I have on my life to lead this people. I'm not wearing a crown walking in front of you all with my scepter. I'm walking in front of you because God's commanded me in my humility to do that. Moses never apologizes for his leadership or for his calling in his life. And there's a difference, and we all need to know that. I can boast in Christ and what he's done in my life. I'm a much better person now. And I'm proud of that because I know Christ did that in me. I will be humble about what he started with. But what I've become, that's an honor. That's a badge. That's something I will boast in. Even Paul says, I'll boast in my infirmities because look what Christ is doing through them, you know? I'm humble, but he took this humble vessel and he's using it in this way. Amazing. He doesn't apologize for it. I wrote this down for myself. We boast in Christ's accomplishments in us. What Christ has made us is worthy of confident boasting. Simply put. Verse 5. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards his soul will be far from them. Um. You avoid a lot of problems in your life and snags when you just walk with the Lord. When you do what God's asked you to do, when you read his commandments and you do them, trusting, although there are other paths and I don't know what each path will end up leading me to, God says they're not going to lead me anyplace good, so I'm going to take his path whether I've ever been down those roads or not, which is ironic because we're going to read Ecclesiastes which if you don't know the story, Solomon goes down every single one of these paths to really see what the end result of all these sin paths are. And God was right, is what he discovers in the end. We can save ourselves a lot of thorns and snares if we don't try to, well, I'm just going to sample everything and just follow his commands. He who guards his soul will be far from those thorns and snares. Verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. This is what I'm going to spend some time on also. Um, The way he should go has two parts to it. I think we need to know that. Most of us focus on doing good or doing evil. And that is a part of it. That's part two. But part one is discovering who this child is. Who is this kid? This kid isn't going to be me, isn't going to follow my path, has has his own calling and purpose in this life created by his creator. He was built for a purpose. What is that purpose? And as a parent, I'm supposed to train this child up in the way that he should go, in the way that God should have him go. He doesn't need to follow my path. He needs to go the way. And so discovering that as a parent is is paramount. It's one of the most important things you can do for a child. 
is to find out the gifts and the strengths that they have versus the weaknesses and see what God has made them for and recognize it and teach that kid and help that kid along the way. You want to do that. That's teaching a child in the way that they should go, training him up. The second one is wisdom versus foolishness. That's for everybody. (laughs) Every kid needs to be taught the right way and the wrong way of life. God's way and the fleshy way. And that goes without saying. I mean, and it goes without, there's, there's no discrimination for anybody. We all need to be taught that. That's training up a child in the way that she go, he should go or she should go. Um, and then when they're old, they will not depart from it. Now, uh, this is important, I think, for us to grab onto because we use this, I think, verse wrongly. Verse six is a principle. It's not a promise. It's a principle. And here's how I know that. I'm not, I'm not watering it down. Because in the same Proverbs, we have two of them especially that talk about someone who has been trained up in the way they should go, has been put on the right path, and has chosen to not follow that path. And here's the verses. Proverbs 2, verses 11 through 15. Discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who... Leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and whose devi- who are devious in their past. They've deviated from the path they were on. Children can do that. They're free to do that. Our job is to train them up in the way they should go. Proverbs 5, verses 11 through 14. Three Proverbs later, it says this, And you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed, and say, How have I hated instruction, and my heart despised correction? I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. The instruction was there. The training was there and the person disregarded it. The child did and found themselves on the wrong path. Thankfully, they came back. So adult children that are on the wrong path, there is hope still as long as they're alive to return back to the right path of God. But again, this is a principle and not necessarily a promise. Um, Training. Training. I think we've talked about this a lot, but training is a lot more than uh, teaching. I, I, I wrote it down here. Let's make sure I have it right. Um, I didn't. Okay. Declaring the truths of God to your children is important, but training them is different. James, as you're, we're going through on Wednesday nights, is describing that very different Um, I I don't know what the right word is. In other words, James is saying that's great that we know the word of God, but if you're not doing it, it is worthless. This is a book. This is a manual. This is a life-giving, the life-giving word of God to teach us the way to walk. Knowing it in and of itself is not the point the reading of this and the studying of this and the learning of this is to do it. It doesn't do any good to Mariah's 15. She's, she's studying for her test to have a permit. 
uh, to drive. Well, the permit <laughs> and the studying has to do with, I don't care if you know the book and you hit people all day long with the car, you know. The book isn't to memorize and get through the test. The book is to help you not kill people while you're driving, you see. What good is it is I ace the test, but every time I drive the car, I wreck it, you see. You get it. You get the point. Training up a child in the way they should go is, goes far beyond the memorization of Scripture uh, all day long. It's very important to understand this. Um, but to let them handle it, to let them see it work, to know how to use it. Um, I can give them verses that help people or help them out of dark places, but if they don't use those verses when they're in that dark place, they'll stay there and it didn't do any good. It was un- ineffective. They never learned how to handle the sword, the Word of God. They never learned how to use it to do battle in the spiritual warfare that they're in. They just learned about its nomenclature, how long it is, how sharp it is. They could tell you every speck there is to, to know about this two-edged sword, but they'd never felt the weight of it. They'd never swung it. They'd never done any battle with it, any war with it. And so it was an ornament in their lives versus a, a very useful tool to carry with them. And so training up a child in the ways that they should go is very important to know the training portion, the handling of it. Verse 7, the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. I think we know that. Um, Many of us are in debt, and we know what it's like. You know, maybe you've been in debt, you know, and the freedom you've, you've felt getting out of debt, and the relief and the weight off of your shoulders. That's all he's talking about here. The borrower uh, is sub- subject to the lender, basically. Verse uh, 7. The rich rules over the poor. Oh, I just said that. Verse 8, excuse me. He who sows iniquity will reap sorrow, and the rod of his anger will fail. I'm going to go out on a limb because I read the commentators on this too because I'm like, okay, is he switching subjects or is he still talking about verse 4? Uh, you know, training up a, or verse 6, training up a child. And I think he's still talking about training up a child in a sense. But it doesn't have to be that. Here's, here's my point. I, I don't know I, I qualify too much. But if I'm wrong and 8 has nothing to do with 6, what I'm about to tell you is documented in Scripture else, other places. So, Maybe it isn't what eight means, but it is taught in the Bible. So whatever you're going to get next is okay. All right. (laughs) When you sow iniquity and reap sorrow, the rod of his anger will fail. If I teach my child, let's, let's see if I put down an example for myself. If I teach my child, I did, if I teach my child forgiveness and the verses that have to do with forgiveness and I go home and backbite people, I've taught the word of God, I've trained them to do evil. You see the difference? Um, And this is a little self-serving, I'll admit this. No matter what church you go to, makes no difference whether it's here, there, or anywhere. If you bring your kids to a church and they're listening to the pastor or anybody in the church teaching, and in the car on the way home, you roast the church. You are the bird that is taking the seed, the word of God, out of your kids' hearts. You do damage. 
if you find yourself, and this is important, roasting every time you leave, you're at the wrong place. You need to go someplace where you don't roast because you're doing so much damage to your kids. They're listening. They're listening to every word you say. And you're taking to them to a place every week and then telling them that that was a waste of time. Although you don't say that out loud, you do steal the word of God. Whatever the Holy Spirit had put into your kids that day, they're now hearing the most important person in their life, their parents, steal and take away what God had just done. And you teach them to not listen. You didn't, or you train them to not listen. Sit still and listen. We train them not to do what they just heard is the idea. Very, very important. So when I teach my kids, <laughs> and, and, and I bring this up, you know, you, you, you maybe, maybe you've heard yourself say this, I taught you better than that. I taught you better than that, you say to your kids. That's the rod at the end of this verse. And the kid, if he had enough guts, would say, you did and you didn't. You did proclaim something different, but you lived what I'm doing. You see, very important. Kids are watching far more what we do than what we tell them they're supposed to be. You see, very important. And so we can undermine our own, you know, I don't know why my kids aren't coming to church. Think it through, pray it through, and see yourself the way you really are. What was church like? Did you scream at them all morning long to hurry up and to get in the car? Quiet and argue and bicker all the way there. And I'm not saying you do this, but it might help somebody this morning figure out why kids in their later years don't want to go to church because their memory is strife, struggle, anger, frustration, shut up and listen, go home, roast. I don't know, I brought them up in the church. Well, you did and you didn't. You see what I mean? So important. Our kids are watching. Our kids are paying attention. The, the training is so important. That they need to hear the word of God and then at home see it happening. See it happening so they can be trained. Verse 9. He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. Our God is generous. We're to be like him. He expects us, and that should be the fruit of our life, generosity in everything, not just in finances, although he is speaking of specifically physical generosity. People see that in your life. You're a generous person. You give bread to the poor. Kids are watching that, and it's good for you. It's just fruit. Verse 10, cast out the scoffer and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. Um. There are times um, when God will remove people from your lives. And for the most part, he's pretty faithful to do that. When ministry is done, when your impact in their lives is either not happening or it's completed, God will remove those people from your lives, and that's okay. You know? And you'll find a peace that comes over. It's like, I had no idea that that person in my life brought that much stress. I was carrying it. I just assumed that was normal. You know, It wasn't. And so... In, a, in the bigger picture here, Solomon, the king, is telling his son, as a leader, and there's someone that's sowing discord in the group 
or in your in your in your uh, in the people that are under your authority, son. When that person that's sowing discord is gone, it's amazing how much peace there is. You didn't realize all the undercurrents that were taking place. So, cast out the scoffer and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. In other words, it breeds or it spreads or it multiplies. One bad employee who just has an attitude, you know, does bring down the rest. It's hard for those other employees to listen week in and week out as this person badmouths the boss or, you know, has nothing good to say about the company. Always, the company's always doing something wrong. They'd never understand if I was the CEO, you know. And, and the good employees are, are really trying to just keep their eyes on the task and move forward. It's hard to block all that out so that you can keep going and do what you know you're supposed to do as a Christian, as a believer, as an employee, you see. And so when those guys go, it's amazing. Oh my gosh, it's so much easier to do my job because that person made me feel foolish for serving in this job so well. Oh, you're making us all look bad, you know, or you're working too hard. We got plenty of time. You got to spread it out. You know, the people that do that. And so then you're still busting your rear end because you, you feel like you should. And you feel stupid because they're looking at you going, oh, God, look at Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. Brown nose, they say, you know. No, no, no. When that person's gone, it's so much easier. And morale goes up. Verse 11, he who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the king will be his friend. I think that has to do with 6, 8, and 11 go together. He who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the king will be his friend. Grace on the lips. <laughs> grace on the lips. We can, we can say grace and people know that you don't mean grace. You know what I mean? You can have grace on your lips, but the underlying, they can feel the tone of your grace. You know, for example, you know, Oh, Bob's asleep in the back, but we'll give him grace. (laughs) I said it, but did I? No. And so the writer here, Solomon is saying that purity of heart and grace on the lips, you can tell when it's genuine and when it's feigned or when it's, I know we're supposed to, you know, we always used to sing a, a, a dumb song, you know, we love Jenny. Oh, we love Jenny. Oh, we love Jenny because we have to, you know, it's a, it's a play on words kind of thing. And it was meant to make, oh, 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 good one, good one. Um, We didn't do it to Jenny. She's too sweet, but we'd do it to, you know, other deacons in the church, you know, kind of thing. You can tell the difference when someone has grace in their lips, but it's not really from a pure heart and it's not from love. It's not truly unmerited favor. It's not truly trying to give them room God teaches us as his children in an environment of grace and mercy, which gives me such freedom to learn, to make mistakes, to try again. That is the goal, I think, of every teacher in this world, is to give a place for kids to learn, to make mistakes, but to also try again, and not to feel so ashamed of their mistake that they never try again. You know, that environment of grace and mercy that should be all around us, wherever we go as Christians, should make people feel comfortable to talk, to share about their shortcomings. 
I know that I didn't do what I was supposed to do, but you're a gracious person, so I'm not afraid to say that out loud to you because I know you're not going to say, you're right, and here's what you should have done. He's like, yeah, I do the same thing. I know it, and we just get back up tomorrow, and we, we do better, you know? Um, I mean, when I, when I was, you know, a lot of these things are just are fresh on my mind, but when we were out of the prison doing that one night of ministry, you know, big deal. For me, it goes on this morning. It's right now. It's happening right now, and I'm not there. But the one night I did it, I really identify with those guys. And I don't mean to say that like, um, like I'm trying to be relatable to them. I mean, I, I was probably one or two decisions away from being right where they are. I was honestly that kind of person. I didn't have the background they did. My goodness, some of these guys' childhoods, unbelievable. I had a great childhood, you know. I have no excuse. It was just me being naughty, you know, being a bad person. Um, so I understood that. So the grace I give those guys is like when they come in, they say, oh, you, I've, been, I've done this, that, the other thing. I said, hmm, yeah. The only reason I don't do those things is because of Christ in me, but I'm fully aware I'm capable of everything you just mentioned, you know. I'm not being cute, you know, it's genuine, you know. Um, that understanding of who you are, which goes along with verse four, that humility, um, going along with purity of heart, that grace that comes off your lips is because you know who you are from that humility place. That brings grace, it makes it genuine in your life. So, verse 12. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge and he overthrows the words of the, of the faithless. In other words, when God sees his word or sees wisdom going out, he preserves that. He makes sure that that stays. But he also makes sure that the words of the faithless, they they come to nothing, you know. They come to nothing. Verse 13, the lazy man says, there is a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. Well, that's the king of excuses, you know. Is there a lion outside? Probably not. (laughs) But that's why I'm not going, man. Uh, there's, uh, uh, why didn't you come to work? Oh, I had a tummy ache, you know. Yep, so did 20 million other people in America, but they showed up, you know. Uh, are you puking? Uh, I mean, are you contagious? Are you whatever? Or, you know, did you hope for an excuse not to go? That's what's happening here. Or did you look for a reason to get past it and move on and make it happen? Responsibility, you know. A lazy man. There's a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. Verse 14, the mouth of an immoral woman is a deep pit. He who is abhorred by the Lord, which is the foolish people, by the Lord will fall there. They're easily duped by these immoral women. Um, nothing good comes from that. Verse 15, we'll spend some time on and then we'll get through and have communion here. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child the rod of correction will drive it far from him. This, again, I think has to do with David's lack of discipline, especially with Absalom. Foolishness bound up in the child. Important to know the difference between foolishness and childishness. There's a difference between that. It's inexperience versus recklessness. If, sorry, Mariah, you're up, you're up to bat today. Um, you know, 15 years old, hit a curb shot with the car is expected. That's just inexperience. And by the way, with a dually pickup truck, it's a daily event for me. You go south on Main to First Street, you cannot get the Methodist Church without hitting the pass, the turning lane there without putting that wheel over. So I just do it. I don't even try anymore. Sorry about the grass. 
Methodists. Now, going 40 miles an hour around a curb and hitting the curb, recklessness, big difference. One needs to be punished. The other's like, oh, go seatbelt, you know, kind of thing. That's just inexperience. With kids, you need to know the difference between they've never done this before, you know. No kid crawls, stands up on the couch and walks a few steps, falls, and the guy, the kid gets beat because he fell. No, that's inexperience, training, learning, getting better, progress. Foolishness, though, foolishness will end them up in prison. Recklessness will end them up in a place where they cannot be a blessing to anybody else. That needs to be driven from them. Um, Children don't, I wrote this down for myself uh, this morning. Children don't need to learn how to sin. They are born with it. Sin nature is bred into us from Adam. That's why we need the second Adam to remove it and its curse from our lives. Um, As much as we hear the world kind of say, well, oh, there's such an innocent little soul. They're not. They just haven't, can you imagine? (laughs) if your baby had a man body or a woman body, how much sin they could get into, you know, out of control. So God keeps them mushy and, and immobile so they can't do as much damage as they really could if they had a fully formed body. They're born with sin, okay? They need a savior. We'll, we'll talk about age of accountability some other time, okay? I'm sure God is gracious and merciful and understands a person where they are, don't have an issue with that. God, that's between God and the baby. But we need to know that our children from birth are going to need to know Jesus. They're going to need a Savior. We don't have to wait for them to sin. It's in them already. It's built in. So that foolishness, as we see, really needs to be driven out of them, or they're going to get into more and more problems, more and more trouble is the idea. Um, and, and for a cross-reference, I don't think we have time to read it this morning. You can read it on your own, because what do you mean first Adam, second Adam? It's from Romans chapter 5. You can read that chapter. 12 through 17 really cover it. Adam brought sin into the world, and now we are all under that sin and are born with that sin. Christ, likewise, died for the sins of the world. He's considered the second Adam in this scripture. And because he died, he can remove. So just like you thought it wasn't fair that you got sin because Adam gave it to you. I didn't need the tree. How come I got it? You know, likewise, I didn't die on the cross either, but I reaped the benefits of it both. Okay. So that's where that section is. And finally, verse 16, he who oppresses the poor to increase his riches and he who gives to the rich will surely come to poverty. So, both are the same in the sense they're going to come to poverty if you oppress the poor or if you just give to the rich and you don't see the poor and you don't minister to them. And that's where we close this morning. Um, guys are going to hand out communion now. When Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. 
This is something that's been given to us by Christ, um, reinforced by Paul, um, to remind ourselves of the forgiveness we have in the death of the, on the cross of Jesus Christ. Um, the bread that we eat symbolizes his broken body, and we should think on that. That Christ's body was broken instead of mine, like we mentioned with the second Adam, just a few minutes before this. The benefits I receive from Christ doing what he needed to do to save us should be remembered and trusted in and bring us peace every time we have communion. That's the point of this. To eat this bread is to remind ourselves that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. It's been given to us. That the penalty for sin in my life and in your life has absolutely been paid for in full. And I cannot help in any way. There's nothing to help. It's complete. When Jesus said it is finished, it was finished. There's nothing left on the books for us to pay for later. He has paid the penalty of all of our sins. The cup that we have is his blood shed for us. My blood um, should have been shed, but his blood was shed instead. He was the lamb of all the sacrifices in the Bible instituted by the law Jesus is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And his blood that was shed is applied to the doorposts of our lives, just like the Exodus, just like the angel of death couldn't get past it. Neither can the angel of death get past it in your life. You don't have death waiting for you. You have life waiting for you in Christ. And we eat and drink this in honor of him, in memory of him and what he's done for us and for our own sakes to bring us peace just in case you forgot that this week or this month. Lord, we thank you for, the, for your love for us. You endured the cross, despising the shame, but for the joy that was set before you, you went. It wasn't your will, it was God's will, and he wanted to do your will. And so you did. You did exactly what your father asked you to do, and we're glad to do it, happy to do it, not reluctant. So we're thankful for that friendship, for that love, for being such a wonderful example of sacrifice to us. God, we want to be that kind of person. So from the forgiveness that we have from you, we want to now live for you and surrender our lives to you and give you every area. Help us to make an impact on this world and the people that we run into each and every day to make that connection, that bond with them. Help us to see the people in front of us and to not dismiss them or walk past them, but to pray for them and to see their need and to do whatever we can to help. Help us to be just like you were. We want to be Christians, little Christ, wherever we go. God. So Lord, thank you for this. It starts with this grace and mercy that we're remembering this morning. It starts with the forgiveness of our sins and the freedom that we have. The chains have been broken and now we can freely live for you. That's where it starts. Help us to be that this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word this morning. It spoke to our hearts. Help us to be doers now, um, to live it. Now that we know it, we're held accountable. We're held responsible. Help us to now be doers. Thank you for this communion time, this fellowship together as brothers and sisters in you, um, all forgiven, all equal, all the same, regardless of economic or any socio, uh, you know, societal barriers that we have. 
Um, we're all equal in your eyes and same in your eyes, and we're thankful for that, God. Help us to see the rest of the world that way too. Remove any discriminations we may have in our hearts as we see people and evaluate them based on what we see. Help us to see the soul, the person, the spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.